0: Psalm fifteen. If you're able to stand with me, I'd love for you to stand with me. We're going to read Psalm fifteen together. Uh, after I read it, I'll say, "This is the word of the Lord." You'll say, "Thanks be to God." Psalm fifteen. A psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, and who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, he who does not slander with his tongue, he and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out uh, his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He, who... Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love, your mercy, and kindness that you've given to us. We pray that you would give us... Um, wisdom and insight into your word. Fill us with the Spirit so that we can see and understand all the truth in this particular psalm. We pray that Lord of course you'd point us to Christ and that we would be able to hope in Jesus Christ and that as we see um, in this text clearly um, commands or descriptions of things that we should do that we wouldn't um, revert over in our mindset to law-keeping and think that we have to do these things in order to be righteous. But thank you that Christ has done these things for us, and now we are righteous, and that we would remember the good news of the gospel and see that in the text. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one day, whenever Jesus was, uh, he was in this particular area where he came across a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day. Um, and as he's speaking to her, and this was not normal, uh, they spoke about a lot of things, but one of the things that they spoke about was worship. Among the many topics they discussed was worship. And Jesus tells her, this woman, what kind of worshipers that God desires. And he says this in John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. The hour is coming is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit And in truth, so if you just want to take those two little concepts of spirit and truth, we have um, spirit as in emotionally engaged; um, that they are having their affections be be moved. They're not just you know like unmoved stoics, but also uh, in truth doctrinally deep. So you can you can be really emotional and know nothing, and that's not good. Or you can know a lot of stuff but have no affections, also not good. And so God is seeking those that are emotionally and affectionately moved by Jesus, but also because they know Jesus. They actually know his word. They're not just moving around and running around and and, and don't understand anything, but also they're not just super deep and know a lot of stuff doctrinally, but just an absolute stoic. He's wanting both of these things, um, emotionally engaged and doctrinally deep. Well, that in a lot of ways kind of points us into um, psalm 15, as we're going into to try to understand uh, Psalm 15. In this psalm, the writer begins with a question in verse 1 that really matters. And the rest of the psalm gives us the answer. The rest of the psalm gives us the answer. So you can see the question there in verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? And who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? This is the question that... Um, is the big umbrella that over the entire psalm as, as you go through the rest of the text is trying to answer that question the entire time. Who is it that can do this? Now, this is written by David. And so some of the commentators say that this is right after he attempted to bring the ark back into Jerusalem after he had left it at Obed-Edom's house for a while. It could be that uh, Psalm 24 was read at, at the call to worship, which is a very similar sounding psalm, which is... When David brought the ark back successfully. And some say that perhaps Psalm 15 was kind of the first attempt. And then Psalm 24 was the, the revised better version. That, that could be true. Um, but nevertheless, they're both scripture. And so they're both great. Um, but we have here, uh, Psalm 24 is helping us understand in a way that we should understand who God is, but it asks questions. And there's one of the questions that it asks for, which is, you know, we ask a lot of questions like, what am I here for? What's the meaning of life? The way the Hebrew would write that is, who has the right to live in the presence of God? Who has a right to live in the presence of God? Or who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who is actually able to come into your presence, God, and live? Who can do that? Who's able to do that? It's a big, important question in life. If there ever was an important question in life, this may be one of the most important ones. Who can come and sojourn in your tent? Who is, can actually dwell on your holy hill? Well, the rest of the, the Psalm answers. And Psalm 4, 15, uh, verse 1, stands in stark contrast to Psalm 14, verse 1. Psalm 15, 1 talks about the man that, that desires God and knows that nothing is more important than me. That's what Psalm 15.1 tells us. Nothing's more important. And he's the guy that desires God. Well, Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, this is the one who dismisses God and thinks there's, uh, there is no God and that he doesn't care about fellowship with God. So if Psalm 15.1 is in contrast to Psalm 14.1. Well, here in Psalm 15.1, where it says, O Lord, who shall uh, sojourn in your tw- tent and who shall dwell in your holy hill? Uh, the ESV Study Bible says that this question, as we're going into, is actually telling us the end for which all humans were created. This is, this is the point of your existence. This is why we were all created, is because we were created as worshipers. And so that means we were created by God, and he gave us life and breath so that we could give worship and praise back to him. And so sojourning in his t- tent or dwelling in his holy hill means Being the kind of person who's been called up into the presence of God to give him the worship that he's due. Who can do that? Verses 2-5 through tells us. So we have the crucial question. Who has the right to do what he's actually created to do? Who has the right to do it? Because we're all created as worshipers. Who has the right to actually go up into his presence and do what you were already created? Because every one of us are worshipers. But not every one of us are actually going to be up in heaven one day, sojourning in his tent, dwelling on his holy hills. Who has the right to actually go do what he was created to do? Well, the answer is only the person that's purely righteous, only the perfectly holy person has a right to go live before God. That's the only person. Which should cause us to say, oh, no. <laughs> right? Uh, the crushing answer as we look through 2 through 5 uh, can make us feel desperately inadequate. Calvin, uh, when he's talking about the, this threefold use of the doctrine of dwelling on his holy hill, uh, three important things to understand about the people regarding uh, or occupying a place in the temple, or we could say church. Three important things to understand about people in church. He says, the Holy Ghost teaches us that uh, we must be holy and live an, an upright life. So it's, Is Holy Spirit empowered? A distinction is made between permanent citizens of the church and strangers mingled in among them for a time. He he references First John two nineteen that there's a difference between those who endure to the end and those that don't. Um, And then he says, God's sacred barn floor will not be perfectly cleansed before the last day. But when Christ comes, He will cast out the chaff. But He has already begun to do this by the doctrine of the gospel, which Calvin. On this account, he terms a fan. The gospel is the fan on the barn floor blowing out the chaff. And so those who believe and trust in the gospel are the ones that will be entering into this holy place. Holy Spirit empowered that there are strangers strangers mingled in and that the gospel is the key thing that helps us understand. So as we look into who is the one that can sojourn. ...in the tent of God or dwell on the holy hill? Well, he's going to tell us here in the following verses. And so uh, the way he's going to do this or the crushing answer uh, that searches us... ...it searches us because we have to hear these things and see for ourselves in our own heart... ...are we the kind of people that are being described? Um, Well, as he does this, uh, hopefully you'll see and hopefully for all of us it's going to point us to Jesus... Uh, the way there's a little pattern to it, it is, verse 2 has three positive tendencies. Verse 3 has three negatives. Verse 4 has two positives. Verse 5 has two negatives. So three positives and three negatives, two positives then two negatives. And it's just by verse. Uh, that's just for fun. That's not actually going to be on the screen. Um, so what we're going to see here as we go through is that there's some general kind of general principles that we're going to see in verse 2. And then he's going to move to specifics. So in general principles... We're going to have an answer to that question. Who is the one that can do this? Uh, well, generally, he's going to tell us in verse 1, He who walks blameless. He who walks blameless. And then the rest of verse 2, he, he gets a little bit more specific, uh, but it's still staying in general principles. Walking blameless means does what's right and speaks with truth, something that's external and something that's going on internally. But let's look at walks blameless. So who can do this? The person that walks blamelessly. This is walking with integrity. This is walking with sincerity. Uh, This is not walking totally uh, sinlessly because that's not possible uh, for us. But it is a singleness of heart. It's not a divided heart. It's not a heart that gives half to God and half to a particular idol. It's walking. for description of what that does by saying, does what is right and speaks truth. So the rest of verse 2 tells us how to um, walk blameless, both internally and externally. It does what is right. This is the external behavior. This is practicing righteousness. Calvin even says that it is to study what is good to your neighbors, Study what is good to your neighbors, hurt nobody, and abstain from all wrong. Um, so, if you are not try- wanting to hurt anybody and abstaining from wrong, and Calvin literally says, study your neighbors. Just an easy application question there. If doing what is right, and Calvin's surmise, surmise says, or calculation says, study your neighbors, if I want to do what's right, then I need to actually know my neighbors pretty well. Are we involved enough with our neighbors and care enough about them? that we would even study their thoughts, their behaviors, their patterns, their actions, so that when we're around them, we would want to do what's right around them and not make them upset or offend them or hurt them. Uh, that's, that's the kind of calling that we might have towards that second greatest commandment, which is to love our neighbors as ourselves. that we would really know them that well so that we wouldn't sin against them. So that's the external, but also internally. Walking blameless is doing what's right, but also, as he says, speak the truth in his heart. Uh, this is telling the truth. The Hebrew expression is added in his heart. And this is saying that there should be an agreement and a harmony between your heart and what you say. Uh, what I'm actually thinking in my heart and feeling that I know is true and what I actually say. It's a vivid representation of the hidden affections or feelings that's within you. And it stands in contrast to fourteen one, the fool in his heart says there is no God, where the worshiper doesn't want to say something that's so hideously untrue as there is no God. The worshiper wants to speak absolute truth. He speaks the truth in his heart. That's what's going on internally, though. It's in his heart because it matters what you're thinking. So to himself, he realizes that there's always, and you should, maybe you don't know this, there's always a kind of a constant conversation going on in your heart and mind. Uh, you're always thinking, you're always trying to, Tell yourself what you should say, what you shouldn't say. Right? It's just not just me. Um, All right. We all are kind of always thinking this. We're always rationalizing and reasoning and making excuses about what we're doing. And so we should constantly tell ourselves the truth as we're doing that. But also, uh, speaking the truth in his heart matters to other people. Uh, As Spurgeon says, Spurgeon says, when you're speaking the truth to other people, this means uh, these kind of men... That aren't doing it correctly will use double meanings, evasions, equivocations, white lies, flatteries, and deceptions. Uh, That's not speaking the truth in your heart. We don't want to be those kind of people as believers in Jesus. We don't use double meanings or evasions or equivocations or white lies or flatteries. We say what's going on. Um, So who owns the, the turf of your heart? Who owns the turf of your heart? Hopefully it's Jesus. And so walking blamelessly means we do what's right. And we say what's true. That's kind of the general principles. So who can sojourn in God's tent? Well, verse 2 tells us the first one, which is the person that walks blameless. He does what's right. He speaks what's true. That's kind of the general principles. And now in verse 3, he's going to get into specific examples. Don't think of these specific examples as an exhaustive list. There is, there is a list, but... You can add stuff to it, but the writer is not necessarily uh, making an exhaustive list, although he is kind of hitting some categories of speech and affections and integrity and contentment. Uh, but as you're with his tongue, uh, they cannot be slanderers. Oh, I didn't space that. I meant to put the space on that. I thought I fixed that. So they cannot be slanderers. This means just simply you, you won't talk peop- about people behind their back. You'll, you'll tell them face to face what it is that you think. You cannot talk people behind their back or slander them with their tongue. But also, uh, he does no evil to his neighbor. Uh, They must restrain themselves from doing anything injurious to their neighbors or mischievous to their neighbors. Uh, So you wouldn't have irritation and and impatience. You wouldn't lash out. You wouldn't push yourself to be the center of tension. You don't neglect your neighbor's needs. Uh, This is the kind of person who doesn't uh, restrain themselves from from mischievous things, or does misstrain themselves, but they uh, they don't do injurious things to their neighbors. But also, as you can keep going, he doesn't slander with his tongue. He does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Um, this is speaking derisively against your neighbor. So this isn't necessarily like the first one is slander. This is more like ridiculing them or mocking them. Uh, you know, just making fun of them constantly in their face or even, I guess, behind their back, um, uh, which is probably the more common practice. But you don't speak derisively. You don't ridicule or mock people uh, or their circumstances. And so when we're looking at those, are, those are three things in the negative sense that you wouldn't want to do. Uh, so who can walk in God's holy tent or in his holy hill? Not the kind of people that slander or do evil against their neighbor or mock other, other neighbors. Um, if you keep going, you'll see in verse 4 there's more. in whose eyes a, a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. So another person is he despises the vile person. Now, that's an interesting thing because we as Christians are told not to despise other people. But he says, actually, you do. You will, you will despise the vile person. So, what's going on here? Those uh, those who love sin, uh, the, those who practice sin, the, the romans' one kind of sense of sin where they 've decided that they 're just going to rush headlong into sin and, and invite other people into it, those who are believers despise this behavior it 's the classic Roman one person, and that those are Christians despise this kind of of behavior, uh, so christians don 't necessarily uh, hate people right we don 't do that, but we do despise sin. And so when he says um, despises the vile person, what he's, what he's meaning is the kind of people that celebrate sin, the kind of people that love sin, the kind of people that are inviting other people into these kinds of sins, um, th- those who sojourn in the tent of God, dwell on the holy hill of God, those people um, are despised by believers because we don't want for ourselves to be those to, to involved in that kind of sin. Now, we still love them. We still want them to come to Christ. But the practice of sin that they're in, we despise. Does that make sense? I mean, it's the classic uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. Um, and, but he does, it's, it's in the text. You can't get around it when he says, when he says um, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Uh, but it's, they're vile because they are practicing sin. And so There's a contrast here between the vile person and the one who fears the Lord, as it says in the second part of verse 4. And so those who are believers don't want the vile person to be practicing that sin. And so um, they would despise this sin that they're involved in. But it also says right after that, but who honors those who fears the Lord. Those who love and fear the Lord are honored by this man. This means that he loves the people of God and he loves being in worship with them. If there's anything that verse 4 is showing us, as you look at it as a whole, it's showing us that he has decided affections. This person that, who is going to be worthy enough to sojourn in the tent of God, to dwell in the holy hill of God, he has decided affections. And those affections that he has decided he's going to give is, he will only give his true virtual affections to Yahweh and no one else. He loves the Lord, he wants all of his true affections to go to God, so... Um, sinful behaviors and sinful habits and things like that, uh, he will not give his affections to. And those who practice those, of course, he loves them. He doesn't want them to do that, but he does not love that particular sin or that particular person more than God. He loves the Lord. That's the person that will sojourn in God's tent who would dwell in his holy hill. So, so far, as we're going through this, when I I termed it the, the crushing answer that searches us, uh, as we're going through this, if you're like me, you're feeling like, well, this is not going really well for me. This is not going really well. So far, I'm, I'm not hitting these very well. I'm not, I'm not accomplishing these things pretty, pretty well at all. Uh, I don't even know anybody that's going to be able to answer this question. Me, me, this guy, who, who, who can do this right here in verse one? No one. Like, who can do that? Well, as I'm going through, it's not feeling very good. Well, let's keep going. Because you have um, verse five. Verse 4, C, I should say, and verse 5. He who swears uh, to his own hurt and does not change. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This, this means that they, if they make a promise, they keep it. Uh, even at personal financial cost to themselves, they keep it. Uh, and they don't seek to get out of a promise because they are a man of God. They're a a woman of God, and they will not seek to get out of it. One commentator uses this example. This is what he says to try to help us understand this little phrase where he says, swears to his own hurt and does not change. To his own hurt. He says, you have a painter come over and give you an estimate to paint your house. And when he does, you say, okay, good. And you promise him the job. That sounds good with me. You're going to give it. Uh, And then you discover from a friend of a friend, a a, a great deal cheaper uh, painter would come and do it for, for a lower price. But since you promised it, you're even willing at your own cost because you made a promise and you're a, you're a man of God, you're a woman of God, you're actually going to keep it with the first guy even though it's going to cost you more. That's just a little modern, modern day illustration. You can move that across any of your illustrations. But this is the point that he's trying to make. Once you've made a promise, even at its own cost to yourself, You won't break that promise. You'll keep it because you're a man or a woman of God. And you want to be the kind of person that sojourns in his tent, who dwells in God's holy hill, and so you're a promise keeper. Once you've made a promise, you keep it. That's what he's saying. So anything like this going on in our lives, we're the kind of people, believers should be the kind of people, that does not change, even if it means financial loss comes my way through this. I want to be a person of integrity. They're promise keepers. So worshipers of God have integrity. That's number six. They're not feeling very good, are they? I went through these way faster than I thought I would. That's good, though. It's finally, a short sermon. This is, my, this is my gift to you. It's my anniversary today. So happy anniversary to me, to you. All right. Um, but, you know, I, I have seven pages and I'm only at number three or four. So I, you never know. It could be I could mess around and take a long time. So here we go. Um, <laughs> The next one is in verse five, he uh, who does not put out money at his own interest. Uh, this is, um, they're not tempted by sin- sinful financial gain. Uh, so there's, there's ways that this can happen, uh, but this, there's this little ver- word I, I learned called usury. I don't even know how to pronounce it usury, it's overcharging interest. Uh, when you charge interest to people and it's overcharging um, or necessarily even by bribes, enticing people with money, out, like with outcomes. Hey, why don't you, you know, slip, slip you a 50 and you can get me something done. These kinds of things is what he's talking about. So either way, uh, this particular person's tempted by financial gain. His, his business dealings, this, this man who loves the Lord, his v- business dealings are always done the right way. He, he earns his money in an upright manner. Uh, Dale Roth Davis, henceforth, Drd, Uh, he is someone who is not obsessed with the economy and who's driven by covetousness or carried along desires to live by the Proverbs thirty, man Proverbs thirty one woman Proverbs thirty man. Two things I ask you: deny me not before them before I die, remove far from me my falsehood and my lying. Give me either poverty, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me, lest I be full and deny you when I say who is the Lord, or lest I be poor. And steal and profane the name of my Lord. Don't, don't make me really poor because then uh, I'll always struggle and be scared. But don't make me too rich because I will never rely on you. Put me right there, Lord, to where I know that you're always taking care of me. And I'm not ever worried about being the kind of person that's obsessed with money. This is the heart of contentment that's, that's being put forth here. Where it says, he does not take out money at his interest. And he does take a bribe against the innocent. Um, Paul says it this way. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 4. I rejoice in the Lord greatly at now at length that you have revived your concern for me, and you were indeed concerned for me because you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking to be of need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, and in every circumstance I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and then the verse that every athlete in college writes on their helmets. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which has nothing to do with college athletics. It's, I know how to, I know how to be poor. I know how to be rich, whatever. As long as I have Jesus, either one's fine with me. That's what Paul means. I can do all things as in I can be, I can be content in every situation. Um, an example was given to us by one commentator, speaking of John Wesley. It was about a man's contentment that was so impressed on John Wesley. And it, this inched him towards conversion, uh, Skevington Wood, if you're, looking, if you're pregnant, if you're looking for a, a, a son, I guess that's a son, Skevington. Skevington Wood tells how Wesley had a conversation with the porter of his college late one night. Wesley found out that the man only had one coat and nothing to eat or drink on that day except just a little bit of water. Still the man was full of gratitude towards God. And Wesley asked him, you thank God when you have nothing to wear, nothing to eat, and no bed to lie on. Else, do you thank God for? And I thank him, the porter replied, that he has given me my life and being and a heart to love him and a desire to serve him. Such such contentment had left his mark. And so, uh, when you think about previous generations before us and even current generations that are removed away from America who don't have much, it seems like. they seem to be much more content with what they have and what's going on in their life than we do. At least I do. Like It seems that the more you have, the harder the struggle for contentment is. When you have more, which is it's not the way it seems like it should be. But since we live in this country and we have likely more than most people in the world, not just today, but have ever been, all of us are actually going to fight this battle of being content. My iPhone's not going fast enough today. (laughs) And when has that been said by Christians in previous generations? Like never, right? And they are far more content. If you've been to a third world country, you can see just how happy, how much more happy they have with far less than we have. And so it is an ongoing battle for us to really think about what contentment looks like in our life and the fact that we might have uh, a lot more things battling for our affections and heart uh, in regard to contentment. And so who's the one that's going to sojourn in God's tent, dwell in His holy hill? If, if it's the one who uh, we're not tempted by sinful financial gain, or just to say it you know, in a positive way, we find ourselves content in our station in life. It's something that we're really going to battle. We're all going to really battle that our entire lives. And so seek to have... Um, the position of Paul in Philippians 2, I'm sorry, Philippians 4, 10 through 13. That I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, fight this battle for a heart that's truly content in Christ no matter what's going on. So we've gone through the general principles. We've gone through these specific examples. And now we're going to think about actually who can dwell with God then. So we're, we're zeroing in towards the end of the psalm. And we're wanting to ask this question Who is it then that can dwell with God? If we've gone through these seven things so far, um, which one of you thinks I've got all seven down? I can dwell with God. I can stand in his presence. I'm the one that can go dwell in his holy hill. Well, none of us have done those things. Uh, The reason why it's a crushing answer that searches us is because no one can enter. Psalm 15, and this is the most important question maybe that we're going to ask the entire time point us to Jesus. How does Psalm 15 point us to Jesus? Look at the very last line. He who does these things shall never be moved. He who does these things shall never be moved. So when we read that, don't put yourself in the position of the he. If you read that that way, you're going to say, he who does these things shall never be moved. Okay, well that's me, so I've got some work to do. Because I want to make sure I do these things so I can never be moved, and I can sojourn in God's tent and I can dwell in God's holy hill, and so I've got some real work that I need to get going on for Jesus, so that I can be the one who can accomplish these things. Del Roth Davis says, "Some might read Psalm 15 and say, Psalm 15 just leaves me in tatters and ruins." Well, it's not the fault of Psalm 15. No one dare complain about there being no grace in the psalm. Of course, there is grace. Anything that brings you to your knees and shows you just how pervasive your sin is and how much you need atonement and forgiveness is gracious. So as we've gone through the answers of who can ascend this holy hill, none of us should feel um, absolutely in ruin and in tatters because this, this psalm and all of the scriptures are pouring grace out to us and meant to lead us Christ, Because when we see he who does these things shall never be moved, the he is never ever meant to be one of us. The he there is Jesus. Jesus does these things and he shall never be moved. And so since Jesus will never be moved, we will never be moved because we have Christ in us. So we realize that this particular verse is actually, the very end, 15C, is giving us assurance. The crushing answer searches us. Well, verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 5, uh, the very end, that could be C, is giving us assurance of salvation and assurance that we can be the ones who can go up to the question number one and say, who shall sojourn in his tent? Who shall dwell in his holy hill? Well, I can, and I have assurance, and it's totally banked on Jesus, not me. When we see all those things in verses two through five, we don't revert over to law and say, keep the law, because once we do that, we realize we can't. Instead, when we see all those things, we, we hear the good news of the gospel, which is that in Christ Jesus, because we can never accomplish not just those particular things, but any of his law, but Christ held the law and kept the law perfectly for us on our behalf. He went to the cross and died for us, but he also lived for us the perfect life. And when we say, Christ come into my heart. All my trust is in you. We get his perfect law keeping and his death for us. All of it credited to our account. And so we will never be moved now. And we can ascend into his holy hill because of the gospel. So the answer obviously is like every always. It's the gospel. And so he who does these things will never be moved. We realize that the assurance given to us and the promise that we can dwell with God on his holy hill is always because of Christ. Christ. Since he will never be moved as the ruling and reigning Savior, we will never be moved as his children. And so verse 5c helps us understand that we're actually kept in God's grip continuously and permanently and never shaken because of the gospel of Jesus. Deloitte David says it this way, vintage Yahweh, communion plus security. Vintage Yahweh, communion, like you get to dwell with God and know him infinitely forever day plus security you know that you get to have communion with him every day and that never ends vintage Yahweh and so because he who does these things shall never be moved because Jesus was never moved we will never be moved because Jesus dwells with God in perfect communion and has for eternity past we can one day perfectly dwell with God Because Jesus walked blameless and always did what was right and always spoke the truth and always walked blamelessly and always spoke the truth, we can now do this because of Christ. Because Jesus never slandered anybody, was the perfect neighbor, always kept his promises, never took a bribe, we can now never be slanderers, always be good neighbors, uh, always keep our promises and never take a bribe. Always because of Jesus Christ. Here in this psalm, we begin wanting, as we read it, who can sojourn in the tent, it should cause us, deep within us, to want to sojourn in his tent. When we read the question, it should put within you a deep desire to say, who can do this? I can, I can. And when you go through it, like, oh man, oh can, I don't know. But verse five, the very end, shall never be moved, ends with the assurance of, oh, I can, I can. So it begins with the question, causing us to want to sojourn and it concludes by assuring us that you're actually safe in his hand because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yahweh always gives you far more than you could ever conceive or imagine. And in this place now, we get to one day be with him in his holy hill. So the right response for us then therefore is since that's the case, since the future that awaits us Is that we will stand in his presence, dwelling in his holy hill, sojourning in his tent. And as we saw in last eight, beholding his great majesty from last week. That's what we should do now. We should live lives of worship. Of course, trying to have these things present in our lives in two through five. But because of the gospel, we, we can live out those things. And the application for us is therefore, live a life of worship now. Because one day... That's what we'll be doing forever. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. Thank you for uh, this great psalm that asks this amazing question, who can sojourn in your tent and dwell in your holy hill? And that as we go through um, a list of answers that can certainly make us nervous, make us um, feel like there's no way that we could do it, that you end the psalm with great assurance that it's Jesus Christ that can never be moved. And so since Jesus kept the law for us perfectly, in Christ, we actually have the promise that God, we will be able to sojourn in your tent and dwell in your holy hill, that we will be with you forever. So Lord, I pray that um, since that's the case and you promise us security and communion, those things will be present in our hearts and our minds and our affections and our daily walk with you now that we would want to commune with you daily. We would want to be with you daily in your word, treasuring the presence of Jesus you give us, knowing that we um, are your children and that since we're your children, you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.